You're listening to Beyond the Plate with Andrew Kaplan. That sounds so weird. You're listening to Beyond the Plate with Cappy. You cannot wake up on the morning and think about the stars. You cannot wake up on the morning and think about the review. Because if you do that, first of all, you stress yourself to death. And also, instead of being focused in what is supposedly your passion, you are distracted. Hey everyone, this is Cappy and you're listening to Beyond the Plate, a podcast where I sit down in person with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the industry and the social impact they have made in their community. Every episode, we share inspiring stories of what it means to be in today's bustling hospitality industry. For this episode, I sat down with Chef Eric Repair, a famed seafood restaurant in New York City, La Bernadette. In 1995, at 29 years old, Repair earned a four-star rating from the New York Times. 20 years later, and for the fifth consecutive time, Le Bernardin again earned the New York Times' highest rating of four stars, becoming the only restaurant to maintain this status for this length of time without ever dropping a star. Repair's accolades are way too long to list, but let me just give you a short taste of them. He's been the top chef in New York City and one outstanding chef in the United States from the James Beard Foundation. Le Bernardin has consistently held three-star rating from the Michelin Guide, which is their highest since 2005. He is number 17 on the world's 50 best restaurants. And on La Liste, which is a worldwide restaurant review aggregator, he's number two in the world and number one in America. Repair has had a TV show called Avec Eric. He is a regular on Anthony Bourdain's No Reservations and Parts Unknown. And we have a fun conversation of how he actually met Anthony Bourdain and how their relationship or friendship or bromance blossomed. Repair has six books, honestly, one of my favorite cookbooks on my shelf, A Return to Cooking. We talk about the influence that that book had on his career. He also has a book called 32 Yokes, which is his most recent book and a New York Times bestseller. Repair is super interesting because he's a practicing Buddhist and we talk about the influence that has on his creativity in the kitchen. Actually, if you're a listener to Tim Ferriss' podcast, Tim Ferriss recently interviewed Eric Repair and they go a little bit deeper into that. We also have a really funny moment where he calls in his saucier from the kitchen and we ask her a fun question and she was quite nervous, rightfully so. But the main reason I wanted to interview Chef Repair and he's been top on my list since starting this podcast is because of his work and dedication to City Harvest. For over 20 years, he's been involved with City Harvest, which is a food rescue group in New York City. He happens to be the vice chairman of the board of City Harvest, and he brings together a bunch of different chefs and restaurateurs to help raise money and increase the quality and quantity of food that gets delivered to hungry New Yorkers. There's a really incredible story in here about why I wanted to interview him about his work with City Harvest. So I hope you listen to this in its entirety because I think it could really change the game for chefs and food scraps and food waste. I'll stop there, but please enjoy this conversation as we go beyond the plate with Chef Eric Repair. So we are under Le Bernardin and this room here is our library war room it's where we do all the meetings with the sous chefs for creativity all meetings with the in general are are in this room and it's a long table with all those chairs around us and then this wall has about 600 cookbooks more or less if there was one cookbook i should pick out which one would it be well one one of ours <laughs> <laughs> I do have one of yours. So I wanted to start because there's two connections I want to make here with you. One, this was not the first, the second fine dining meal that I ever ate. I lived in New York City. I was young and I was scraping up some money here and there. And my wife at the time, at the time she wasn't my wife, my girl, she's my wife now. Yes. She didn't eat seafood. Oh, And so anytime she went out of town... I said, excellent, now I could go try the seafood restaurant. So it was a, it was a weekend night, and I said, I'm going to pop into Le Bernardin, and, and I did. And I sat at the bar and had the menu, and I wrote down everything that I ate. 
and I just reread it this morning, actually, everything I ate. What I tell everyone is at the time, my menu was $109. And I said, that was the first meal that I ate. It was in 2008. I said, that was the first meal that I ate that I actually would have paid more. Like I, I physically say, I would pay more for that. You should have told us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was time, incredible. Thank you very much. It's an ultimate compliment, really. Yeah. I mean, I, I, the, I remember a Moroccan spice, monkfish. Uh, oh, I mean, yes. And, and that changed the game for me with monkfish, quite frankly. And in my notes, <laughs> I wrote, I would take this over lobster any day. That's what I wrote in my notes. <laughs> wow, that's very nice. I mean, I, I really appreciate that. It's, yes, very nice of you too to say that. So my, my second connection here is I, I heard you talking in your Tim Ferriss episode, you know, you have the things you want and you said you have the pair of sneakers you like. So I had to bring up a sneaker story. Do you remember the sneaker story? This is going to ring a bell and you're going to face palm in your forehead because I remind you about this almost every time I see you. It was 2003 or four at the South Beach Wine and Food Festival I used to work for the South Beach Wine and Food Festival and you were doing a cooking demo and you had just arrived from a store called The Shop with a real, you know it, yes. <laughs> you just made a face, Absolutely. You know, and you arrived with a pair of Puma shoes and Absolutely. you were about to wear them on stage. That was me. I was a student at the time. Oh my God. <laughs> yes, of course I remember. And so you were trying them on and we said, hey chef, you got about 15 minutes. Are you ready? And then you turned in a very kind way and you looked up to me and you said, is there someone that maybe can get me a half size smaller? <laughs> And I said, and I was, that was like a, a great challenge for me. Like a young kid, I'm like, I got to make everything happen that I can. So I called this, uh, this store called The Shop and I said, I need this pair of shoes. There's talent on the beach that we, and I didn't say a name that we, you know, they're doing about, about to do a cooking demo. They just bought a pair of shoes. It was this pair of Pumas. Can someone meet me on the road? And they sent someone with your shoes and I returned your shoes and you had a brand new pair of shoes within 15 yes, minutes. Yes, I remember that extremely well. It was fantastic. It's because I had flip-flops uh. and I felt bad because I was like, you know, I should not be giving a cooking class in flip-flops, although it's Miami and it's supposed to be relaxed. I was a bit conservative and I knew exactly what I wanted which was uh, a pair of Puma. And I said, you know, I, I need to have some real shoes for that demo. And it was a last minute thing. And you're right. Uh, I love, I you, love you this saved, story. You saved the day for <laughs> me. <laughs> that was, I think that was your first demo at the Wine and Food Festival. Yes, it was. Fantastic. I love it. All right. So let's, I want to talk about um, your basically life as a chef. If I said to you, who is Eric Repair? What do you say? He's a human being like you and, and all of us. <laughs> He's a guy who happens to be a chef, who's very passionate about what he does and try to be a better man every day, day by day. And uh, the rest, I don't know, people probably will give you more information than me, <laughs> but this is basically my goal to be um, a great human being as much as I can. And to be a great chef, a great family man, simple. <laughs> okay, so what if I asked some of your line cooks or sous chefs, three, th what, would, what would they say if I said three words that your line cooks would say about you? That's a good question. We should bring one now. That would be funny. And, and put him on the spot and say, <laughs> say three words about uh, uh, Chef Repair. <laughs> <laughs> Call it to the kitchen. Uh, but, we, but we can do that if you want. I would love to I do can that. I can send someone. All right. If okay, you want to do Give me one second. Perfect. Ashley, can you send me, uh, you want a line cook or sous chef? Or line cook. A line cook that worked with us for at least a year or two. Someone at the level of saucier. Someone on what? At the level of saucier. Okay. Anyone. Okay. It doesn't matter. All right. Okay? You, you say, but you say it's rush. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. How about some of your line cooks like back in the day? Because you have had a... Back in the days, I, w I was a very, obviously at one point a young chef and I had a very bad temper. I was very demanding with myself, but with, with the team as well. And I was very abusive verbally, obviously not, not physically because, I mean, if you beat someone in, in America, first of all, you end up in jail and, and I was not that bad. But I was having tantrums in the kitchen, throwing plates on the floor, believing that managing a kitchen like that was the right way because I was emulating some of the chefs that I had 
been trained with and I had seen in France. And then I realized I was 100,000% wrong. And I changed overnight my views on, on managing a team. And I decided that to scare the cooks, to scare the waiters, not was not inspirational to them. It was not um, a good way to manage a kitchen. We wouldn't have good results. We didn't have good results. And I spent the rest of my life changing. The, and we're talking about 1991 or 92, something like that, in the 90s. So since then, I have been working effortless to make sure that the kitchen is... Um, an environment where people can blossom and I do not tolerate abuse from, from anyone. Now, it happens that sometimes someone has a bad day or, or some, some, some of the line cooks have a temper like, like me when I was younger and uh, sometimes with the pressure they flip, yeah. but I make sure that we are not proud of it and we don't uh, promote this idea. And therefore, if it happens, and it happened to me sometimes, so I'm, I'm a bit rough on the edge, but not, not that much. But if I'm doing that, I apologize. Immediate, not immediately, sometimes a bit later, but I apologize on the front of the person and make sure that I show a good example to the rest of the team. Is that still a work in progress? It's still a work in progress because you always have young people coming to your team. It's always a rotation uh, we have about 65 cooks and therefore we have some uh, line cooks that come here and have been trained under uh, different circumstances, have a temper and have a tendency to lose their cool during service and so on. So yes, it's a constant work in progress because we have to make sure that we integrate them well into our team and that they understand that being angry is not the solution. Uh, it's actually counterproductive. Yeah. So your book, which is one of my favorite books of all time, Return to the Kitchen, I didn't know the history of that. I just uh, enjoyed it as a beautiful piece. The stories, the recipes, the people that came along with you. Was that book a turning point for you? Or did something ca something cause you to do that book? So you're talking about a return to cooking. Yeah. Return to Cooking was in. I, Sorry, de I, I decided to, to. I decided to do that book in 1999. We did it in 2000. It was published in 2001. I was under tremendous pressure uh, at Le Bernardin. It was not easy at all to manage the kitchen. We had four star in a, in, in a New York Times. Michelin was not here yet, and I was kind of burned by working six days a week, 16 hours minimum per day. I had a lot of stress. Uh, it was not, not a, an easy time for me in, in that in 1999. Although I, I was not managing the kitchen in an abusive way any longer, or I was trying not to, I don't recall exactly. I may have, I may have some painful experiences for some cooks, but I think I was really, really uh, burned. And for me, a return to cooking was a way to go back to my roots, which is cooking, not managing a kitchen. The idea was to study the seasons and be inspired, exactly like Vivaldi did the Four Seasons. We did the Four Seasons in cooking. And therefore, I surrounded myself with a painter, two photographers, a writer, which was Michael Ruhlman, and we rented four different houses in four different regions of America for about 10 days to study um, the seasons, of course, but to, to see what was going on, to have an experience. And we were starting every morning from scratch. So the painter had, a, had many uh, blank uh, canvas. I was going to the market, so or going to the, the source of... Uh, for the food to, to the farmers or any, anywhere I, I could find food. And Michael Ruhlman was documenting, the photographers were doing also whatever they would like to do and uh, they were doc actually documenting the experience. And for me, it was an important moment in, in my life as a professional because until then, 
I was refusing to accept that I was a talented cook. I, I was always saying, I have zero talent, I'm not good. Although I was rewarded by the New York Times and I had many accolades and I, I had a lot of press and each time someone was asking me about my food or, or about myself, I sincerely believed I was a lousy cook. Really? And a return to cooking was a revelation because the idea was to cook for the group, take pictures like reporters, or, and th then the food had to be eaten. And I was doing testing menus. And uh, in those testing menus, we were eating like six, seven courses. And I would eat my food with, with the rest of the group, of course. And, uh, and uh, I was like, my God, this is good. Oh, wow, this is really good. Oh, wow, this is good. This is... And I surprised myself. And then I realized that I was basically insulting my luck by saying I'm a bad cook. I said, you know, you, you, are, you are gifted and you have to recognize it. Now you have to be humble, of course, because the idea is not to have a big head, but it's to say, thank you so much for giving me the gift of cooking and use that gift in a good way instead of like pushing it away and saying, I'm not good because it's, it's, it's really not, not nice. But what was, I mean, you were cooking great food here. Clearly you were getting the stars and reviews and then you were making great food in a smaller setting. Like what, what was it? Was it like the, the lesser amount of stress and you were doing it on your own time? Not really. I think what happened is that when we were young in France, my generation in the kitchens, we were always, always, um, insulted by the chefs and it was a lot of abuse, verbal abuse, like I mentioned before, in many kitchens and we, we will never say it's good. It was never good enough and we never had talent and we never had, so that stayed in me. It was basically like a precondition created by my training and therefore until I really did this experience, I was still con conditioned by that training that was basically bringing, bringing us down. I think the idea was to break us psychologically, right? And then to rebuild us potentially as champion. And in that process, we lost so many people who had talent because they couldn't handle it. I did, but I was conditioned and I was convinced that I had zero talent at, at all. So that book for me was a revelation and it was late in my career or, or already, it was in 2000. Caitlin just walked into the room. Caitlin, what's your position in the kitchen? Uh, I'm a saucier. You're a saucier in the kitchen. And someone called up to the kitchen and said, can Caitlin come down? And you probably had like a, a walk where you've been thinking the whole time, what the hell this chef need from me? What did I do wrong? Exactly. What? <laughs> and then you're sitting here. <laughs> this is incredible. This is not a test. There's no right or wrong answer. Well, maybe there's a right or wrong answer. There's no right I or wrong leave answer. The room. <laughs> no. I've been chatting with Chef Repair, and I had asked him who is Eric Repair. So he was talking about himself, and then I said, if I were to ask one of your cooks. In three, what, what three words they would use to describe you, what would they say? And here we are. Um, I heard you say humble earlier, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use that one. Okay. I definitely think Chef Repair is humble. We have two more to go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but thank you for the first one. <laughs> I'm trying to think of like a nicer word for serious, like... Uh, when he comes into the kitchen, like his presence is known always, uh, but it's not, it's not like a, like a scary, um, it's just, okay, uh, everybody top of your game. It's, yeah. it isn't like a, it isn't like a, uh-oh, is everything okay type thing. Right. That, that was a sentence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's why I brought you because I couldn't answer. <laughs> Reward is tough. Talented? Can I, that works. Is that not too no, that's, obvious? That's um, that's fair. Uh, 
his palate is incredible when he uh, tastes my sauces and he immediately knows like the exact method of how I did it. That's and crazy. he tells me like, okay, so you did this, but you need to do this instead. Yeah. Uh, like earlier this morning with a, a duck sauce, he said I used too much uh, stock. Um, the ratio of bones to stock was off. I did too much stock and not enough bones to get that uh, solid duck flavor. And he knew that just from like taking a exactly. like a tasting spoon. Yes. <gasps> or when incredible. I need to add a certain aromatic because it is too powerful or not powerful enough in the, the process. Amazing. Thank you for so your precise. time. <laughs> it's precise. Yeah. Thank you for yes. your time. Okay. I appreciate Thank you it very much. I'm sorry. And you're that. in the clear. We didn't mean to like, I can imagine that 90 second walk down here to the basement. You were probably like, oh my God, Perfect. what did I do? Thank you so much. I hope those were satisfying. You're great. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good service. Thank you. So now we have the answer. <laughs> <laughs> now we have an answer. I love that. Real stuff here. I'm diving around here. This is fantastic. Okay, so we talked about awards. So you, I mean, you're you're in world's fifty best restaurants. Your top reviews from New York Times for so many years running. Top reviews from Michelin. Yet at one point you didn't believe you were a good cook, but I want to do, I'm just taking out my phone because I want the calculator. I want to know. <laughs> so let's, let's just take, how many years have you been? I, I came to Le Bernardin in 1991. 91, so. June 11th, 7.40 a.m. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, because I look at my watch, I knew it was something special. You know, I had a few moments in my life when I knew it was something important in my life. And that one was one of those moments. And I, I said to myself, I need to look at the time and I need to remember because, I don't know, this place has something special or it's going to be something special. And I look at the clock and it was 7.40. That's incredible. So let's just take 25 years. And let's just say, how many days a year are you open? Well, we open about 300 days a year. 25 years times right 300 days a year, 7,500 Maybe a bit more, 300 years. How, let's just use a round number to how many plates, how many people are here <laughs> in a day times how many plates the course is. I'm it's, just going to use very, a low number. It's very difficult to calculate because we sell a lot of testing menus. Right. So one testing menu is... In between the can, if you start from the canapes to the petit four, plus the seven, eight course, you're talking about nine different plates for one person. And if you sell at night, maybe about 60, 70, 80 testing menus, you multiply 80 by nine, and you have 720 plates just for those people. And then you have people eating prefix. Uh, you have people in the lounge, you have people at the bar. We have people in private events with different kitchens. Uh, we do we do have three kitchens at Le Bernardin, and we have a rotation of the cooks going to all the kitchens. They're never in the same kitchen. So basically, we cross-train the team. We have 65 cooks, and then we bring sometimes some help for the day if we have a lot of private events. But if you are someone who's cleaning the plates, you see a lot of plates on a daily basis, that's for sure. I'm going to venture to say that you've put out over 5 million <laughs> plates of food since you stepped in here on June 11th at 7.40 a.m. Over 5 million well, plates of food. I would say with, with the team. Of course. With the team, of course. Yeah. I have, I have days off, I have vacations, I do a few trips. So it's, yes, Le Bernardin, Le Bernardin has and still serve a lot of plates on a daily basis. You keep the highest ratings plate after plate after plate with all these reviews and ratings. And, and at one point, you basically said these accolades didn't, for you, it didn't confirm you were a good chef. Do these accolades now, do they matter to you? Do you celebrate them? Yes, we celebrate the accolades. It's very important for the team first, first of all, because it's an official way of them to be rewarded not only from from their uh, supervisor or from my, from myself, but it's basically recognition comes that comes from the outside world. 
I get a lot of compliments from the clients, but they never hear it because they are in a kitchen or they are busy serving and or busy in offices and, and so on. But when they see the review or when they see the, the ratings and so on, for them, it's it means a lot. And for me, of course, it, it means a lot. I don't take any uh, awards or rewards for granted, but I teach the team how not to be obsessed with the ratings and... You cannot wake up on the morning and think about the stars. You cannot wake up on the morning and think about the review. Because if you do that, first of all, you stress yourself to death. And also, instead of being focused in what is supposedly your passion, you are distracted. And you're not living fully the experience of what it is to work in a place like Le Bernardin or at this level of cooking. And I always make these analogies, like if you're an actor and you think about winning the Oscar or an Emmy, you, for, you forget about what you're supposed to do on the front of the camera, acting. And you don't even have the pleasure of acting, you're just thinking about the Oscar. And therefore, you will never get your Oscar. And it's the same for us. I think if we are distracted or if we are thinking about something else than being creative, creating a very special experience, giving the best food we can, and living our passion, all those accolades will disappear. So until we see it, we don't think about it. Now, when the Michelin comes out, I don't say that one or two nights before I sleep well, but the rest of the year, I'm really, really not thinking about it. And I understand the importance of it for the restaurant, for the life of the restaurant, for the spirit of the restaurant, for the economics of a restaurant. I mean, to be at the top means that it's almost guaranteed that business is going to be great. If you lose those stars, if you lose the good reviews, well, it's going to have some negative consequences and, and it's, no, it's no doubt about it. But again, you cannot let... You cannot let that fear paralyze you. So therefore, we are making sure that on a daily basis, we ignore that. Well, I wish so many more chefs and restaurants just took a snippet of that mentality. And I would love to be in some of your pre-shift service meetings where you guys are talking about that. You can always join us. (laughs) (laughs) How do you keep up with today's food world? Well, kind of a two-parter. Um, how do you keep up with today's food world? And are there any like younger chefs that you like, keep your eye on? Or is it more of a holistic approach? Well, first of all, the cooking of Le Bernardin is based on experience, which means by living in New York, we are, and we are a New York restaurant. Therefore, we are inspired by the community that lives in New York and its many cultures and ethnicities and therefore we see different techniques, eat different ingredients, learn different techniques just by being in New York. All of us, the, the, the team and myself, we, we, we do that naturally. And then I happen to travel for vacation or for inspiration. I just come back from Japan and I'm extremely inspired by what I saw in Japan. That comes in some ways into the menu slowly, uh, in, in some dishes with some flavors from where I'm coming from. When I go to Spain, suddenly I'm extremely Spanish. When I go to Italy, I'm Italian. When I go to France, I go, and I'm still French, obviously by, uh, by default since I am French. Uh, it's always in me, but I bring those influence into our menu. Then we work with a team So in creativity, we use in that team the talent of sous chefs. Sous chefs are employees who have been to all the stations of the restaurant, including the saucier, which is the most important station. And they understand the spirit and the style of Le Bernardin. And we have a small team of two gentlemen and sometimes it's a lady, doesn't matter, but right now we have two gentlemen in creativity full-time that work with me. And then we have 
in this room, actually, weekly meetings with the entire team of sous chefs. And we exchange ideas and we basically work with the creative team that has all day long to experiment and, and work with me uh, at times because obviously I'm not with them all day. I'm, I'm, I see them a couple of times a day and, and we, ex we try the food and we see what we can adapt and so on. So in, it's a collaboration. It's a teamwork that creates ultimately the menu of Le Bernardin. And of course, I'm the oldest I'm the one who, who's supposed to be the wisest. <laughs> um, and, and ultimately, I'm the one who's basically giving the stamp of approval on whatever goes to the menu. You talked in the Tim Ferriss interview about your interview protocol and staging and, and whatnot with, with your line cooks and how that works. And you all seem pretty particular, but it seems like you have a good formula. You hear so much in the industry these days about people complaining about the lack of resumes or the lack of people. Do you guys, are you guys feeling that or not, not as much? No, we're very lucky that we have a lot of resumes. We have a lot of young people who are interested to come here for the experience. They come from schools. They come recommended by chefs. Sometimes they come on their own and we uh, don't have any problem to find young people who are motivated and have talent. That's excellent to hear. Now, they're not necessarily fully trained and knowledgeable. This is our job to do that, to bring the knowledge to them, to share the, the know-how. They're here to, to learn from us and they know that. And it's a good dynamic. If you work at Le Bernardin and it's, not easy because we are very demanding. In return, we guarantee you that we will do our best to share with you all the, all the knowledge that we have accumulated in our lifetime. I feel like you should do a book that, I, I know you're just coming off of a book, but <laughs> I, and I know books are not easy. You should do a book that is... So there's cookbooks and kitchen books and then there's front of house books and, you know, Danny Meyer has a service book and Charlie Trotter has one, had one. I feel like you should do a kitchen service book. Mm, that would be interesting. You know, like people talk about service and hospitality in front of house, but there's something to be had for what you're discussing right now. And I think it's easy for people to say, there's no help, or I get these cooks and they're not motivated. Well, are you motivating them? Are you giving them the tools to perform? I mean, it's like a cook when he complains that he didn't perform well because of his knives or because the, the pen was not right or the fire was not hot. Ultimately, it's his responsibility. He's blaming, blaming it on something else. And I think when chefs are complaining about the lack of knowledge or the lack of motivation or the lack of employees on the market, they have to think about themselves a little bit. And maybe they have a part of responsibility in the process. There's a, a chef, Lee Wolin, in Chicago who has Boca Restaurant and Somerset now. And I've talked about him before on this podcast, but he has a, a cook at his new restaurant. He, he talks about how there's not a ton of help out there. Um, and he has a cook at his new restaurant that was a manager at McDonald's. He's mm. training her and she, he said she's kicking ass on Garmage right now. That's fantastic. I think it's amazing. Yeah, it's about motivating people who have already that fire to succeed. And when we hire them, also we are very cautious. We want to make sure that they have the potential. Some people are extremely... Being a, a cook or a chef is not about being the smartest and the most... It's a, a lot of people who are extremely intelligent and have a lot of talents, but they're not meant to be in a kitchen or not meant to work in a restaurant. And those people have to be um, discouraged to go in a kitchen and spend years if it's no good outcome for them. It's better for them to be redirected to something else. When we select our team, we are very cautious and we have to make sure, and, and, and it's what we do on a, almost a daily basis, uh, that we can see some something positive for them with us here. Because it's our, again, our responsibility 
to make sure they uh, they succeed in their vision. What was the last restaurant experience that stopped you in your tracks or that wowed you? Anywhere. I was two weeks ago in Tokyo. I went to Ryujin. I was blown away. I was just like in heaven. 16 covers, very intimate, small setting, beautiful china, everything beautiful. And, and the food was so, so refined. I had an amazing experience in that place. And uh, I was very happy. Yeah. <laughs> happy, happy for myself, but also happy for the team that was working around me in the dining room and for the chef and, and uh, for his team. Lightening it up a little bit here. Many chefs, including Mr. Bourdain, <laughs> have done food TV. Right, you did. You've done Avec Eric. Yes. Um, what's your take? Be honest. What's your take on chefs and TV? I have no problem about chefs and TV. First of all, I think it's for the chefs. It's pretty good to be able to go on TV because 40, 50 years ago, it was almost none of them on, on TV. Some chefs have different talents, and some chefs are entertaining on TV. And people watch them for the entertainment. Some chefs try to be inspirational. Some chefs try to share techniques. At the end of the day, everybody has the choice to switch channel or to follow a chef or not. Whoever has success on TV or whoever is on television, I think he's doing his best to, to communicate whatever is their, their vision. Now, some chefs are not my style at all, and some chefs inspire me, and some, some chefs are not too interesting to me, but I respect all of them tremendously because they're really uh, working hard. Television is not a walk in a park. It's not easy. It is not. What chefs inspire you? Well, you talk about Anthony Bourdain. I think what Anthony is doing is pretty amazing because... He's on CNN now with Parts Unknown. He takes you with him in destinations that are not necessarily uh, something that you would go for. I mean, last week was Nigeria. First of all, it's difficult to go to Nigeria and to have connections and to see as, as much as on the show. And he shows you an aspect of the country that is cultural, historical, of course, the food is the common thread in, in a story, but it's to me it's remarkable because the images are beautiful, the narrative is very interesting. He does his own writes and, and says his obviously his own voiceover, and uh, I'm very inspired by his show. How do you meet him? I met Anthony in 2000 when he wrote Kitchen Confidential, uh. and as you know, it was scandalous and it was a huge success. And someone, a lot of clients said, you know, you, you are all, of, all over the book with, I mean, Le Bernardin. And I was like, no, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and then I read the book and he was very complimentary of Le Bernardin. I, I invited him for lunch. So I called him at Leal and said, you, you know, I'm, thank you so much. And I would love to invite you and, and meet you. And the, develop, the, the friendship started to develop like that. What three words would you use to describe Anthony Bourdain? Noble. Honest, curious, and as many other words. I mean, of course, talented. And, and he, actually, Anthony is a very good cook. Yeah. Uh, he was a chef before. And when he cooks something, and he has done that many times for me, his food is really, really delicious. Okay, so you're a practicing Buddhist. Yes, I do. How has that changed your life? Well, it has changed my life... Completely. I started to be interested in Buddhism when I came to America in 1989. It took me until the late 90s to understand a little bit better the philosophy and, of Buddhism and practice more. And today I, I practice on a daily basis and it has changed completely my life and my vision of life and understanding of life. And what is interesting in, in Buddhism is that it's, it is a religion, if you wish. It is a philosophy, if you wish. And it is a science as well. 
And it's very interesting because you can explain Buddhism through a science and therefore in a secular way. And it's of course, I mean, not of course, but it's a non-dogmatic philosophy. And that for me is very, it's very interesting. And it's explaining, I mean, my, I have a certain degree of comprehension, which is limited, obviously, compared to, to many Buddhist masters. And I am not a master, I'm a student. Let's put it <laughs> right away on the table. <laughs> But it, it's helping me tremendously to, expl to understand all phenomenons of life. And it's motivating me to be a better human being on a daily basis. And of course, I make mistakes. And of course, I'm, I'm, I'm not better than anyone else. I'm just motivated. And I win small battles after small battles. And I still, still have a lot of challenges. And Buddhism for me is definitely an instrument, a, a, a way of getting where I want to be. How has it helped your creative process? In terms of creativity, it helps because if you meditate, mindfulness, you basically train your mind to concentrate. And concentration, I think, in creativity is key. Mindfulness also is very important because you don't let your mind go all over the place you basically stay focused and I think it's helping in creativity because in creativity you have to go to the, the root of what's going to potentially become a dish and you have to be obviously focused to not lose the spirit of your vision. So Buddhism, it's helping me that way for creativity. Can you give us a Buddhism or meditation 101? I mean, like Headspace, the app is very popular right now. I use that. I've been using it for a little over a year. I love it. Um, I do it. I try to do it every morning. I should probably do it for longer. Um, but know, I the also... Time, the time is not necessarily something that we should focus on. I think by when you... Put time on, on your meditation when you say, I'm going to meditate five minutes, 10 minutes, half hour. You're putting pressure on yourself. It's better to not think about it. It doesn't matter. I think it's, if you do three minutes that are really productive, very meaningful, it's better than trying to do 10 minutes and, and have a clock or looking at your watch or in having in your back of your mind that time timetable. I have the, the tendency to go in meditation every morning and I do two types of meditation, shamatha and vipassana. So shamatha is basically called single point meditation is when you focus in a present and try to have your mind not thinking about the future, neither the past and It doesn't mean that you, you don't think. You, you're very aware of what's around you, but you do not, you discipline yourself to not, like I mentioned previously, uh, travel in time. You are fully here. And when you do that, you are prepared to go to the next step in meditation, which is basically guided meditation, which, which, which we call Vipassana. And guided meditation can be an exercise that is totally secular or it can be an exercise that is uh, religious or, or, or spiritual. It, it all depends. But my, in, in my case, uh, I do single point meditation, which is basically being mindful and being in the present for a little bit. And then when my mind is calm, I... I go to the next guided meditation that I, or, or I decide a topic and I go into it. And that's what I do every morning. So I feel like I have the monkey mind um, often. We all do. <laughs> <laughs> Which they explain, you explain as thinking about the past or the future and, and it's more so about being in the present. But I feel like I do these guided meditations and sometimes, like you're saying, like the, the first few minutes I do it, I'm in such a, 
calm, clear place. Sometimes it's the last three minutes. Sometimes it's in between. But I always, I feel like my I, I start just starts thinking of other things as I'm doing it. One of the exercises to help to stay in the present is to basically position yourself as a spectator of yourself. And when you have a thought, think about, oh, Eric had a thought. And not feel guilty about it or not feel good about it. It's just about acknowledging that your mind was wondering and go back to not wonder. And if another thought comes, you acknowledge that you had another one. And by doing that, you basically, yeah, of course, it's a repetitive process day after day, years after years. But by doing that, it helps you to really be in the present and to concentrate. And it has a lot of benefits. Yeah. You have a meditation room at home, right? I do have the luxury to have a meditation room. How long have you had that? Or is it? I have this meditation room since 2010. So we are in 17, for seven years. Last night when I was falling asleep, I had come up with some content, but obviously it's the night before I chat with you and I'm thinking of, you know, topics. And in my head, I'm like, maybe I'll turn my office at home into a meditation room. <laughs> uh, we'll see. I mean, you can. I mean, it, it, I mean, look, I'm very lucky that my family, it's supporting my idea of having a, a space for basically myself. Not in a selfish way, but it's, it's, it's a space that the family um, respect. And because I'm Buddhist, I have some some Buddhas and probably many too many many too many yeah. <laughs> uh, you're not supposed to be attached and, and, and collect I have some paintings and tankas are basically cigarette paintings and and have a meaning as well but in that room I I have a lot of um, artifacts yeah. that are related to Buddhism and that inspire me it's a peaceful environment of course and again, I mean, it's it's a great luck to uh, to have that. Uh, it's it's basically luxury to have that space. Speaking of family, you have a family tradition with your son, which I I have many traditions <laughs> with. <laughs> there, I think there was the Sunday dinner tradition. Yes, can you share a little bit about that? For sure, especially when my son was younger. Now he's fourteen years old, but Sunday night we eat at home, and I'm. I'm the cook. See, it's no chef. <laughs> and I decide the menu depending on the season, of course, and uh, of what is available and the inspiration. But what I'm cooking at home is basically home cooking. It, it's not a Le Bernardin experience, or it rarely it's something at that level, but something that is satisfying, nourishing, healthy, nutritious, delicious. And I spend some time shopping and I spend some, some time obviously cooking in the kitchen. And when my son was younger, to motivate him about liking the idea of having a dinner and so on, he was in charge of setting up the table and decora decorating as much as he could decorate it, make it beautiful for a celebration. And then at the same time, he was in charge of writing the menu. And also... I was giving him the freedom to choose the theme. That's a full experience. So therefore, he was thinking about eating Chinese, eating Spanish, eating French, eating whatever he wanted. And I would cook that kind of food with the limited knowledge or, or more knowledge, depending on which culture he would choose. He would do those very nice menu and he would write the best he could and decorate the menus and then do the table and we will light the candles and we will spend uh, time like that. Today he doesn't write the menus anymore but he's in charge of setting up the table and making sure that we have a very good experience, a family moment that is um, very happy for all of us. Is there a dish you make, a dish you cook that makes your wife happy? I think it's a lot of dishes that makes her happy because she loves food. But coco vin, is, it's probably the dish that she she asked me the most. And I make coco vin now in October, November, December. I mean, when the when it's cold outside. Sometimes she asks for the coco vin in the summer, and I'm like, no, let's do something lighter. <laughs> uh, but I love to braise meat and 
it's it's a process and the house smells good and it's of course delicious. So Cocovin is probably yes, her, her, one of your favorite. So I'm going to go to um, a fun speed round of questions. Okay. First thing that comes to your head. Yes. What did you have for dinner last night? I don't eat at night. No? No. I have a big lunch and then I test food all day long in small quantities and I, I do not have dinner. So last night I was at the restaurant. I ate probably the equivalent of three enormous plates but in small bites and, and small tastes. Yeah, interesting. When was the last time you ate fast food? I do not eat fast food. I mean, if, if pizza is fast food, which I don't consider fast food, yeah. last weekend I had pizza, but to me it's not fast food. Yeah. Name a smell in the kitchen you love. I love the smell of truffles. White and black truffles. They're very different, but I love them. Name a smell in the kitchen you hate. Well, we are a seafood restaurant. If something is fishy, I really hate it. Yeah, that's good. That's good to hear. Uh, what pisses you off in the kitchen? I don't get pissed off. I get frustrated. What will definitely frustrate me the most is to see someone who's not respectful of others and of the space and the products. What makes you happy in the kitchen? What makes me happy is when the food is good, and we have a good rhythm and everybody is doing his duty and his focus and is having fun. You land in France. What is your first stop for food? I'm not predictable. It's not like I go to the French bakery and I have a pain of chocolat or I go to buy a saucisson. Or it, it all depends. The last time I was in France, you'll be, you'll be shocked by my answer. I had this crazy idea of eating Chinese food. And I went to the Peninsula Hotel to have, have lunch because I was waiting for my room in another hotel. And I had, they have a nice, very nice Chinese restaurant I wanted to try. And I went to eat Chinese and then I was scratching my head and I was like, <laughs> I am in Paris and I'm eating <laughs> Chinese. This is nuts. <laughs> That's funny. Then, of course, I, I, I ate a French dinner yeah. and I, I went to Guy Savoie and I had a fantastic meal and so on. But I'm not, I'm not necessarily preconditioned. Yeah. What actor would you want to play Eric Repair in a movie? Some people have asked me and I don't really have an answer. I hope it's a guy who's not a villain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. When I was coming up with a list of people who I would like to chat with for this podcast, you were right up top. And there's a very big reason for that. I've been on the leadership council and the food council and whatnot for City Harvest for many years. And I know you're a big part of City Harvest, which is a food rescue organization here in New York City. Here's the sh incredibly shocking and unbelievable moment. I, one night when I lived in New York, went out on a route with a City Harvest truck driver. And we went to, you know, little markets and restaurants. And then they said, oh, our next stop is La Bernadette. And I said, the hell are you picking up from Uber? I, I want to eat that food. You know, what are you picking up from Uber? And I followed the driver in and you had a standalone freezer in the basement that they would go in and there was food scraps and bread from the end of the night and things like that. And and I, this was 10 years ago. Yeah, it's actually, actually a fridge, not a freezer. It's a fridge. It's a fridge, yeah. I still talk about it. Um, to this day. And I think you set an, an extraordinary example for your commitment to City Harvest and beyond. Can you explain more why City Harvest and about this relationship? Well, we are in New York City, the financial capital of the world. I'm working in a restaurant that is a luxury restaurant. We feed people who have enough money to pay a substantial bill. Either way, they, they're very wealthy or they save money, but they're not starving or they know when, when they're going to have their last next meal, I'm sorry. You have a huge community in New York City close to the richest community that is in need. And we're talking about 1.3 million people. One child out of four, when he doesn't have school, doesn't know when he's going to have his next meal. And City Harvest Mission is basic and logical. They pick up food that will go to waste, that is nutritious, fresh, very often delicious, and that food is about to go in the garbage and they pick it up 
and they bring it a couple of blocks from where the food has been picked up or sometimes it goes to the facility and that food instead of being thrown away goes to people in need and I feel that it's a moral obligation to be part of a process like that to avoid waste as much as we can and make sure that the community in need is benefiting from that. So City Harvest pickups from supermarkets and restaurants and many outlets in New York City that give them food. But City Harvest also pick up food from large companies. And like if they make yogurt, for instance, and it's the last day for the sales of the yogurt and they have sometimes hundreds, thousands of yogurts unsold, City Harvest makes sure they pick it up, bring it to the facility, distribute it to people. Some farmers sometimes have some fruits that are ripe and they're delicious, but the supermarket don't want them because they're ripe and the shelf will be short. We pick up those, those fruits and vegetables, whatever we can, and we redistribute it. I mean, we, City Harvest, redistribute it in, in a city. They have 22 trucks and two trailers. And on a daily basis, they serve thousands of pounds of food. Basically, per year, we're talking about 55 million pounds of food distributed to people. And if one pound is about a meal, it's basically 55 million meals just for the city of New York City of food that would have been lost. Yeah. Was there a certain moment or, or, or more yes. so as a whole? It was a certain moment. I was coming out of Le Bernardin and I had a good night and it was a su successful night and clients were happy, the kitchen was happy and I w just outside I could see people sitting down like homeless people and they were, they were obviously in need and he, it hit me in the head and I was like, oh my God, it's such a contrast. We can, I cannot stay mm, passive about that. And I was looking for an organization that will help people in need. City Harvest doesn't feed homeless people necessarily. City Harvest feed a lot of people who live in New York City, have jobs, have families, children, but they just can't pay the rent and send the kids to school and, and buy clothes and bring food on the table. And therefore they need some help. And City Harvest is doing that. And someone recommended to me 20 something years ago, 20, almost 25 years ago, to, to be involved with City Harvest. And that was for me like a blessing. I felt really good about it. One of the main reasons I started this podcast was to get stories like that out there. Because if one chef somewhere says, that's it, we need to keep our scraps and give it to a food bank or shelter, like, that's what this is about for me, for real. So Yes, for sure. Let's thank you for sharing that. Do you mentor your cooks in this sense, or do you leave it to them to do something that they care about in terms of giving back? No, we definitely share our, our vision of not wasting food that will be uh, potentially uh, given to someone in need. We make sure that the cooks are aware and we give them all the tools to save the food that is not served at Le Bernardin at the end of the day and that will not be served tomorrow. Sometimes it's just like string beans that are perfect, but, you know, in a four-star restaurant, tomorrow it's not the standard that I'm looking for, but they're delicious. At home, I will eat them, and I want to make sure that those string beans are not going to the to waste, to, to the garbage. And we give all the tools to the, to the cooks to, to put them in boxes and storage them and so on. And we, send, we make sure that they are sensitive to uh, fighting waste in a, in, in a kitchen. And then the cooks by themselves bring boxes and bags of food into the fridge dedicated to City Harvest. So they're all aware of it. That's and sweet. we have some reminders to what the, during the year. And... Uh, we make sure that they're sensitive to that. And I think they are very sensitive to that. Thank you again. Looking back on your career, what would you want people to say about the career of Eric Repair? He lived his passion fully and had no regrets and left an interesting legacy. 
That's ambitious. <laughs> Chef, thank you. I appreciate thank you very the time. Much. My pleasure. Thank you. Quote, I have a certain degree of comprehension, which is limited compared to many Buddhist masters. It's motivating me to be a better human being on a daily basis. And of course, I make mistakes. And of course, I'm not better than anyone else. I'm just motivated. And I win small battles after small battles, and I still have a lot of challenges. And Buddhism for me is definitely an instrument, a way of getting where I want to be. Thanks again to Chef Eric Repair. Find more on him at ericrepair.com or lay-bernarden.com. That's lay, L-E-B-E-R-N-A-R-D-I-N.com. Join us next week when Beyond the Plate presents Just the Plate, a short segment where chefs describe a recipe sharing insider tips on what makes this specific dish meaningful to them. Chef Repair walks you through his seared tuna with a soy ginger vinaigrette and baby bok choy. Repair is arguably the best seafood chef in this country, so you may not want to miss this one. You may find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at On Cappy's Plate or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at BT Plate Podcast, and we also have a Facebook page. This episode was produced by myself, along with Ian Cohen, Joe Eaton, and Shant Petrosian. Big thank yous all around. Our music has been composed by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. A big thank you to my wife, Katie, who's been helping me with this podcast before Beyond the Plate with Beyond the Plate. Please rate, review, or subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy. And remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.